and I don't know if you've ever played darts before, but they're not easy, right? Like it's not easy to throw this tiny little metal thing at the bullseye that's really far away. And so um, while we were playing, um, I did something I've never done before. Um, I got three bullseyes in a row, which was just astonishing. It was a miracle. And, um, and so it got me thinking about goals, right, for New Year's. Um, and if you don't, if you don't have a, a target to hit, then you don't know really, like, what you're going to hit. If you're going to hit anything, if you don't have a target. Uh, maybe you've heard the saying, aim at nothing, and you'll hit it every time. Maybe. Right? The point of that being, wait, we need goals in life, right? Like, we have goals when it comes to silly games, like target, like throwing darts. We have goals in, when it comes to basketball and soccer, like when it comes to football, right, we have, we have goals. We, we know what the goal is. Uh, while we were playing darts, uh, they have a TV out in the garage, and um, so the football games were on, and uh, Georgia um, just squashed, right? Who did they beat again? <laughs> Michigan. I forgot even who they played. They just squashed Michigan, right? They absolutely demolished them, and, uh, and, and I was thinking, like, man, you, you better believe that, like, Michigan – realized they didn't reach their goal, right? They did not accomplish their goal. They didn't hit their, their intended target, but they knew what it was. They knew they had one, right? If, if we have goals and targets for silly things in life, shouldn't we probably have goals when it comes to like our walk with Jesus? Like every, every year, day in, day out, month in, month out. And so I want to encourage you, like encourage me, like challenge us as a body of Christ that we should have goals, like set a goal, have a target that you could hit this year, right? Maybe it's reading through the Bible in a year, right? Or maybe it's memorizing some scripture. Um, even if you memorize one verse a month, then by the end of 2022, you would have 12 new verses in your arsenal, which is pretty incredible, right? Maybe it's memorizing a passage. Maybe it's memorizing an entire chapter of the Bible, right? But that's a good spiritual discipline. That's a good goal to have, right? Um, or perhaps it could be you, you want to pray more, you want to fast more, something like that for, for the year 2022, and, and hopefully we'll be doing more of that as a church together, Lord willing. Um, maybe it's practicing some new spiritual discipline, or uh, it's refocusing on, on one that you've, you've done in the past that you really enjoy. Um, perhaps it's discipling someone, if you're not discipling somebody, or you ask somebody to disciple you right? Like that's a, that's a huge goal, right? It could be if you're not serving in the church anywhere, it could be, man, you know what? I really want to serve somewhere. I, I want to I to invest in the church. Um, so on Sunday, like, man, huge goal, lofty, help out in the nursery. Mm, watch out, watch out, right? Like help serve, serve in the nursery, serve in Treehouse, in Treehouse Junior, right? Like, like there's tons of needs, there's tons of opportunities, Right, and a church this size, like, like we've got a lot of people. And, and, and what's awesome is even if you serve somewhere that takes you out of this room, like tonight my wife is, but guess what? She's gonna get to participate in worship later in the week because there's this thing called podcasts. And you can listen to the sermon later, which is just fantastic. You gotta love technology. But whatever it is for you, we should be aiming at something, right? We, we need to be more, um, we, all, we know that the goal is we wanna have a more intimate relationship with Jesus at the end of the year than when you started, right? You should be closer to the Lord at the end of the year than when you started the year. 
Um, and every discipleship relationship or group that I have ever been in or ever started, um, I read this at the beginning. I wanted to read it to you guys. In Luke 9.23, Jesus said, If anyone would come after me, let him take up, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. The process of discipleship should at minimum include Jesus' standard of being a disciple as stated in Luke 9.23. Denying oneself means turning from self-centeredness to Christ-centeredness, from self-love to loving and enjoying a relationship with Jesus. Self is no longer in charge. God is. Christ rules the heart. Taking up your cross is saying yes to God and no to yourself. Jesus said yes to the Father's will and ways and no to himself. We are called to do the same. Yes to God, no to self. Following Jesus is being a student of God, knowing what Jesus taught. To know that we were created by God and for God. To know God, love him, and find our joy in him. When we live like this, we will find that we will love others like Christ loves us because our hearts will be in alignment with the Father's. Our affections will be influence our actions. And when this happens, when our eyes are fixed on Jesus, then we will seek to follow Jesus, be changed by Jesus, and be committed to Jesus' mission. Right, like that should be our aim, our goal, right? And, and, and so that, that's really long, but you can memorize Luke 9, 23 and have that as your goal. Like every day, I need to deny myself. I need to take up my cross, die to myself, and I need to follow Jesus, right? And what that could look for you, a daily checkup, like personal checkup for you could be like, am I decreasing and Jesus increasing, right? So for me, that's like, has there been less of Joseph today and more of Jesus, right? It's, it, it can be that simple. And so I just wanted to challenge us to, to set a goal, right? Have a target in 2022. Be disciplined for the purpose of godliness because we want to be a people who love Jesus more at the end of 2022. We, we want to be his church, right? We, we want to live on mission as well we should. And, and this, no, this is not a New Year's resolution sermon, all right? I just felt like we needed to address that because it is the first sermon in 2022. So, we're going to continue our journey through Genesis. If you have your Bibles, please open to Genesis chapter 7. That's where we're going to be tonight. And uh, we're going to cover the entire ch chapter. And if you'll remember from last Sunday, um, we, we realized there was a lot of parallels in the passage and analogies between Noah and Jesus and between the ark, God's judgment, and God's salvation. And so in his work preaching Christ from Genesis, Sidney Gregana says this, God encouraged Israel with the message that though God judges wickedness, in his grace, he will save a remnant to continue his good kingdom on earth. So Jesus teaches that on the day of the Son of Man, he will judge many, but save a remnant. So it's important for us to realize that the major theme in this passage, and that what we need to have in our minds as we're reading Genesis 7, is that there is divine judgment throughout. Now, it's not just divine judgment. It is, we see divine grace as well, but that's the central theme in this passage, and I, I kept coming back and being overwhelmed by the fact of how much God hates sin, and we see this over and over again, and he hates sin so much that, that we see the flood, that we see his judgment coming on all of humanity and all of the earth, and so if you could put it in one sentence, you could say that the point of the passage is God judges evil, but in his grace, he saves a people for himself. God judges evil. He will judge wickedness, or he will judge corruption, but in his grace, he saves the people for himself. There is a remnant. 
Now, a few questions pop up as you're reading this passage. If you've studied it, if you've looked at it, if you've read children's books, if you've read the Bible, if you've watched any videos, and you've probably seen, like, maybe you have some questions, or if you've um, talked to people who are skeptical, they could ask questions like, um, what, couldn't this have just been a local flood instead of a global catastrophe? Um, how did Noah get all of the animals on the ark? Right? How did that actually practically happen? What did that look like? Could he have held all of them on the ark? And wasn't the, the world, like, didn't the world look different than it does now? How did that happen? Um, why did, uh, um, how did the water come from up and below? Like, what did that look like? Where did the water go after? If it, covered, it was enough to cover the mountains. And were there dinosaurs on the ark? Like, these are great questions to ask. Well, we don't have time to dive into all of them. We answered some of them last week in, in chapter 6. But I want to remind you that we have plenty of extra resources. Um, so if you haven't been reading the midweek emails, there's a ton of extra resources in there. Links to videos, articles, podcasts. And I highly encourage you to, to read those, check those out, and take those rabbit trails. Just dive deeper. They're exciting. They're fun, right? It's a good use of time. Uh, and so I encourage you to do that. Uh, Noah's Ark story, it spans Genesis 6 through 9, right? And we're in chapter 7 tonight, and uh, you're going to hear a lot of echoes from last week, okay? And, and the, the repetition from chapter 6 is intentional, and it's obvious, Right, so God is trying to teach us something through the repetition that we hear in this passage. And so let's pray before we read, starting in verse 7-1. Father, I thank you so much for tonight. God, and, and I just admit, personally, I know I need you. And every person in this room needs you. We need your word, and we need for you to help us to understand. Help us to feel the weight of our sin. Help us to hate sin as much as you hate sin. Help us to see that judgment is real. Help us to see your amazing grace as well. We ask all these things in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Starting in verse 1, chapter 7, this is God's word. Then the Lord said to Noah, go into the ark, you and all your household. For I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals and male and his mate and a pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and his mate. And seven pairs of the, anim the birds of the heavens also, male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of all the earth. So the ark had to be completed by now because at the end of chapter 6, God told Noah and he said, it said that Noah's obedience was full. He did all that God had commanded him. So if the, the ark's finished, it, Noah's obedience set him apart right from his culture, and his obedience flowed from his walk with the Lord, not vice versa. And in the first verse, we see that God says again, I see that you, Noah, are righteous. You are righteous. So Noah's righteousness was not because of anything that he'd done. It's because of God's grace. In his commentary, Warren Wiersbe says this, Noah's righteousness didn't come from his good works. His good works came because of his righteousness. Noah believed God's word, and his righteousness was God's gift in response to his personal faith. The only way people can receive righteousness is by admitting their sins and trusting Jesus Christ to save them. Noah must have learned this important truth, that faith from his father Lamech, who learned it from his father Methuselah, who learned it from his father Enoch, how important it is to teach our children and grandchildren to trust the Lord. So clearly Noah was righteous, but his righteousness also means that he feared God, right? And now this wasn't like a, a horror movie type fear. 
There's different ways you can fear the Lord, right? The first way that you can fear the Lord is you can fear his judgment, right? If you don't know him, then you could be afraid of punishment. You could be afraid uh, that there are consequences for the decisions that we make in life, right? And so you could fear his judgment, or number two, you could fear reveren reverentially, which means you, you fear him so much that you're in awe of him, you worship him. And we see both of those in this passage, right? Noah knew judgment was coming. He believed and obeyed the Lord. He also revered the Lord, and he made plans to worship him on the ark and after, however long. He didn't know how long he's going to be in there. So God continues to speak to him and give instructions to him in verses 2 and 3. God gives no explanation to Noah to differentiate between the clean and unclean animals. So we could assume that Noah didn't need an explanation. We don't have one in the Bible. He didn't need one because he knew what they were for, what God was talking about. We know God said that each animal needs to come in according to its kind, two by two. So what's with the seven pairs of animals, right? These animals were for sacrifices. Noah was making plans to worship the Lord. Kent Hughes in his commentary said that the, the animals anticipate Noah's offering sacrifices at the end of the voyage and also anticipates the sacrificial system that would develop after the flood. Noah and his family were sinners who would carry into the new world the sin of the old. Because although they could be removed from the old world, they, they couldn't remove the sin from their own hearts, right? So look with me at verses 4 and 5. God continues to speak to Noah. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth 40 days and 40 nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all the Lord had commanded him. You'll see that God doesn't shy away from taking the ownership of the judgment that he's about to bring on the earth. Right? He's not ashamed of this. Right? And it says, God put them in the ark for a week before the rain came. Think about the faith that this took and the patience and the trust that they had to have. Right? Wearsby points out, during the final week before the flood, they finished gathering the animals and putting them and their supplies in the ark. They followed the Lord's instructions, trusted his covenant promise, and knew that there was nothing to fear. When you trust the Lord's word, there's nothing to fear. Last week, we mentioned that Noah's walking with the Lord turned into work, right? The, the walk always precedes the work, and now the work has turned into waiting. They would go into the ark, and they would wait. They would go into the ark, and they would wait for God to shut the door. They would go into the ark not knowing how long they were going to be there. God says some very heavy and very sobering things in this passage. In verse 4, he says, every living thing that I have made, I will blot out. That word blot is interesting. It's not one that we use every day in, our, in the English language, right? But in Hebrew, it's makach, and it means to wipe out or to exterminate, to erase. So this is the same word that David uses in Psalm 51, and Psalm 51 is a psalm of repentance, and he, he's throwing himself at God's mercy, and he prays this, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Blot them out. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. So God made everything out of nothing, and God can blot out everything too. 
right? And David was right. Sin is evil in God's sight. And, he, and God is just, and he's just to judge, to blot out. God would be removing every living thing from the face of the earth. But at the same time, he would be saving a remnant. In verse 5, it says, Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him, which is repeated from chapter 6, verse 22. So Noah continues to obey the Lord. And this obedience motif is present and intentional throughout the flood narrative. If you remember, right, think about the original audience who heard this for the very first time. Right, when they were hearing this narrative, Israel would have picked up on the rhythm that God speaks. Noah listens. God gives instructions. Noah obeys. Right, Alan Ross says, we catch a glimpse of what it means to walk with God or to be righteous. The report of Noah's obedience to God's commands in such a perverse generation would have been instructive for Israel under the law. While this would have been very instructive for Israel, it's also instructive for us today. God has spoken. We have his word. Are we listening? All right, God has given us instructions. Are we obeying? This is very simple. It's not a massive leap to get from what can we take away from this passage, right? It's, it's pretty simple. God has spoken. Are we listening? God is giving instructions for life. Are we obeying his word? Let's continue to read in verse 6. It says, Noah was 600 years old when the flood of waters came upon the earth. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Of clean animals and of animals that were not clean and of birds and everything that creeps on the ground, two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah as God had commanded Noah. And after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. So Noah's family went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood. All right, to, today, God's people are in Christ, right? To escape the wrath of God's holy and just judgment over sin. Like we learned last Sunday, Jesus is our ark. Jesus is our escape. Jesus is our rescue. Verse 9 tells us that the animals went into the ark two by two, male and female. Now, I know that like, we've, we've all seen those drawings of the cute little animals walking like single file lines, side by side, shoulder to shoulder into the ark, right? And we don't know if that's how it happened or not. But that doesn't imply that Noah was like a skilled hunter, or that he went on this amazing trapping expedition, right? And he gathered all, him and his sons went out and gathered all the animals. That's not what the Bible says, right? Last week, uh, me and my boys went to Miller's Creek, North Carolina, which is near North Wilkesboro. Uh, my brother has some land up there, and we went to celebrate my nephew's birthday, and, uh, and we were camping, and uh, my nephew, he's six, he got a BB gun for the first time, and so uh, naturally we went squirrel hunting, you can't really kill a squirrel with a Red Ryder BB gun. You can make it mad. But um, we went squirrel hunting, and, and my brother's got 90 acres up there, so we were all over the, the land, okay? We were out there for hours, um, and uh, we didn't see one squirrel. <laughs> like, not one squirrel, which is insane, right? And my brother was like, if we were out here deer hunting, then we would have seen 100 squirrels. That's just how it works. You know, but when you're trying to look for that one thing, you, you can't see it. Um, and so Noah and his sons didn't have to go searching for squirrels or all the other animals, right? Like verse 9 tells us that the animals went into the ark two by two, male and female. This tells us that God sovereignly brings the animals to Noah, just as he brought the animals before Adam to name them, 
Right? Adam wasn't hunting, walking around, looking for the animals and naming them. So we see God's sovereignty even in this. And verse 10 tells us it took seven days to get all the animals and supplies in the ark before the flood came. Now in verses 11 through 16, we will see very repetitive language. Listen to God's word. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and in the windows of the heavens were open, and rain fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. On the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. They and every beast according to its kind and all the livestock according to their kinds and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind and every bird according to its kind, every winged creature. They went into the, the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh in which there was the breath of life. And those that entered male and female of all flesh went in as God had commanded him and the Lord shut him in. Notice the depth of detail in verse 11. It says again, Noah's age, but it tells you very specifically when this happened, right? This is an actual dated event in history, right? This, and, and verse 11 also says that there is two sources of water, one from below and one from above. Above is very common for us. It's understandable, right? We've seen rain. Maybe you heard some of it last night, right? But the waters from below bursting forth, that's not very common for us, right? Um, a few years ago, I was in uh, Myanmar, Burma, and we were walking to church, and one of the local missionaries was like, hey, I want to show you all something. And so we go off the path, we go through the woods, and, and in the middle of nowhere, out of the ground, seemingly out of a rock, is a massive, like, river flowing with water. We were not on a mountain, right? Like, this is in the middle of the woods. Like, this water is fresh water gushing forth from under the earth. It was absolutely fascinating and astonishing. And so when we read this passage, I don't, have, I don't have anything really to reference. That's the only thing I could think of when it says that the waters from below burst forth from the great deep, right? God's doing something supernatural here, not just bringing rain down from the heavens. So God, once again, is the main character. He's the decisive actor in the narrative, right? The, the ark was God's idea. One door in the ark was God's idea. In verse 16, it could easily slip your mind if you're just reading it in a cursory level. Look at it again. It doesn't say that Noah and his sons and his wives strained really hard to shut the door. It doesn't say that, right? I was talking with my father-in-law about this. He said something profound. He works with wood a lot. And he said, um, I read somewhere that the door of the ark weighed 25,000 pounds. From a practical standpoint, I, I realize that no man could have built a door that would have kept water out of that ark. It would have sunk the first day of rain. Just the wonder of God's infallible, impenetrable protection over the remnant. Only God could shut the door to keep them safe and ensure that it would remain closed to ensure that they were secure from his wrath to be poured out on the wicked. In his book, Genesis in space and time, Francis Schaeffer said this about verse 16, when the Lord shut the door. This is a hard verse, and I'm thankful that Noah did not have to shut the door, knowing that men would soon be drowning all around him. I don't see how Noah could have done it, but he wasn't asked to. That's huge. 
He was asked to be faithful, a preacher of righteousness. He was asked to believe God and God's propositional promise. He was asked to build a boat, but after he built the boat, the time came when God shut the door. That was the end of the time of salvation. It was closed because God had closed it at a point in the flow of history. So once again, we're reminded that this is God's story. This is God fulfilling his plan, God fulfilling his promises. This is God's judgment. And it's all-encompassing, right? Nothing gets out. Look at verses 17 through 20. The flood continued 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters, and the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all of the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits in depth. Some people try to say that this is a local flood, right? But verses 17 through 20 are a very clear indication that this is a global catastrophic event, right? Pretty, pretty simply. When it rains just a little bit, I mean, it doesn't have to rain for over an hour, like water starts to leak in my garage. It just comes in, right? When it rains all day, creeks turn into rivers up here, okay? It rained for 40 days and 40 nights, this is, and, and did you hear the language? Like, can you imagine 40 days and 40 nights of torrential downpour? And, and the repeated emphasis cannot be missed in those few verses. It's six times it says floods or waters. Seven times it says prevailed or increased. Two times it says covered. This is total cleansing, complete blotting out. The earth is washed of its corruption and violence. And the result of it is found in verse 22, 21 and 22. And all flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth and all mankind. Everything on the dry land and whose nostrils was the breath of life died. This flies in the face of the lie that Satan told Adam and Eve in the garden. You will not surely die, right? God holds to his word. God is not a liar, right? He judges justly. Corruption always leads to destruction. And this is total destruction. Everything died. It's universal death. There are no survivors except for those that are in the ark. The storm was supernatural, and only the rectangular box that God instructed Noah to build survived. God brought an end to it all. God rained down utter chaos. God turned the earth into a watery grave. These are some of the saddest and darkest verses in the entire Bible. Schaefer says this, God's judgment falls against sin, for God is holy and there are moral attributes, and we live in a moral universe. If God does not hate sin and judge sin, then he is not a holy God. There are no moral attributes, and we do not live in a moral universe. But the whole Bible resounds with emphasis. God does hate sin, and God will judge sin. There comes a day when God shuts the door. It's very clear that God judges sin absolutely nothing is left out 
Look at verse 23. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground. Man and animals, creeping things and birds of the heavens, they were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark, and the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. So blotted out is used again here, right? Why? For added emphasis. This is apocalyptic language. The end of the world as God created it. You could say an uncreating, if you will, right? Ross says that the account of the judgment shows an eschatological event. This point cannot be missed. Jesus interpreted the passage in an analogy with the final judgment in which all of the wicked will be swept away and only the righteous will enter into the new age. So that passage that Ross is referring to is in Matthew 24, where Jesus predicts the second coming, that he is coming back. And this is what he says. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field, one will be taken, one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken, one left. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day the Lord is coming. So we don't know the day or the hour, but Jesus will return. What we do know is this. Those who are in Christ are safe. Only Noah was left with his family. Only those in the ark. Only those in Christ. Genesis 7.24 tells us that the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. Today our world is dusty. It's dry because the waters receded. They went away. Last week I was reading early in the morning and my youngest son got up and he came into my room and he climbed up into my lap. And so I continued to read to him and, and this passage was on my mind as I'm reading this Listen to Psalm 103. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. For the wind passes over it and it is gone. And its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. We are dust. We are dust. And God's word of judgment to man from Genesis three nineteen still continues to come to pass. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Tomorrow is not guaranteed. Right? Yeah, it's a new year. We all celebrated the new year. We got to, to ring it in. But there will be very possibly some in this room right now who will not see the end of 2022. The reality is this. Life is short. Eternity is is long. Fear the Lord. Walk with him. Believe his word. I'll close with this quote from Kent Hughes. Today, through the cross, 
Jesus has provided an ark of salvation from the coming judgment. He has warned explicitly of the coming judgment, and so have his apostles and prophets. Only those who enter the ark through his redeeming blood will be saved. This has been the message in these last days for more than 2,000 years. So the main point remains, God judges evil, but in his grace saves people for himself. And the only way to escape God's judgment is by faith alone in Jesus. There will be a time when the door will be shut. God will close the curtain on human history. Time will be up, but you still have today. Repent and believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And be encouraged. As Sidney said, though God judges wickedness in his grace, he will save a remnant to continue his good kingdom on earth all for his glory. So let's live for his glory. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for your word. It is sobering. It is alive. It is active. It never returns void. And I pray that we would take you seriously. I pray that we would believe your word. I pray that we would not neglect your word. I pray that that you would instill in us a hatred for sin. I pray that we would not shy away from sharing the beauty of the gospel with those in our sphere of influence. I pray, God, that we would listen to what you have said. You have spoken. You are speaking today. May we listen and obey all for your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.